0: of the wicked are deceitful. Proverbs 13:15. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. Proverbs 14:12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Proverbs 23, verse 7, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Proverbs 27 verse 19, as in water face reflects face, so man's heart reveals the man. And finally, in, in Proverbs 28 verse 5, evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all. All those proverbs had something in common. They had to do with the way that we think. We can learn an awful lot from the Old Testament, as we're seeing this year especially. One thing that we are learning is how to worship God, where it comes from. It comes from deep within. It comes from the human heart. And what these proverbs had in common was dealing with the way that we think. The way that we think. Have you ever looked into a, a pool of water that's just really still, a pond or maybe a slow part of, the, of a creek? Uh, Old Man's Cave is a really good place to do that. There's, there's that when it hasn't been raining uh, furiously, but there's those slow moving waters, trickles of streams, and then there's bigger pools. And when you look in there, that's how the ancients looked in the mirror. And he said, as water, uh, as, as in water, face reflects face. When you, when you lean over and look down into that pool carefully without touching the water to ripple it, you can see the reflection of your face. Uh, with a little more technological development, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, for now we see dimly as in a mirror. They still didn't have glass mirrors like we did. But now, James says, as in looking in a mirror, now we can look in there and see a, a perfect reflection of who we are, and what is revealed to us. Sometimes we like, sometimes we don't. But just like looking in a pool of water, a man's heart reveals the man. When you look in a mirror, you know, what you see is what you get. It's pretty hard to redefine yourself when you're looking in a mirror, and it surely makes us uh, ask a lot of questions about ourselves. It's been said, watch your thoughts, for your thoughts become your words, and watch your words because your words become your actions, and watch your actions because your actions become your habits. Watch your habits because your habits become character, and watch your character because your character becomes your destiny. You heard that before? That's a great progression of thought about how what goes into your mind becomes you, if you don't have control over it, if you're not self-controlled. And what we're going to see in the sermon today is a prophet who comes on the scene, Jeremiah, and he goes right to the heart of the people, and God has him deal with their thinking, the way that they're thinking about him, and they're thinking wrong about him. Now, the way that we think is very, very powerful because uh, it it reveals what we're seeking, I think. In other words, what thoughts you allow to be cultivated into your mind, what thoughts you allow to take place in your mind uh, usually are dictated by what you want. What you're after. What are you seeking in life? If you're seeking your own glory you're probably going to sift through your thoughts and hold on to those thoughts that support you being your own Lord. If you're seeking after God, the Creator, and you're thinking about life, you're probably going to sift through those thoughts and hold on only to those good things, holding fast those things that are sure, the Apostle said, and you're going to allow those to become the building blocks for your words and your actions. And that will build your character, which becomes what we answer to God with. My, myself, my person, my personality, my character. That's what's going to be standing before God in the judgment. And so it all begins with the way we think, but actually it even goes back perhaps a step further uh, to what we are seeking Now, on the iPad, I do not have anything, uh, so I'm going to to be turning around here looking from time to time. I'll need you guys to advance that slide twice for me, please. Um, And hopefully we'll get that figured out sooner than later. Uh, The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 2. Listen carefully to this. In Romans chapter 2, that God will render to each one according to his deeds... Eternal life, that's the destiny part, the end of this is eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. That will be their destiny. But glory, honor, and peace, he wants to leave you with, but glory, honor, and peace to those who work what is good. You see, what you seek for is exactly what you're going to find. And what you do is going to lead you there. You know what they call someone who continues to do the same thing but is expecting a different result? There's a word for that, it's insanity. They continue to do the same things over and over again. They're trying to get different results. It's insane to think that we can have glory, honor, and peace with God if we're continually doing the things that don't lead us to that end, that are not in obedience to the will of God through Christ. It's insane to think it's unreasonable. We use that term a lot. It's not reasonable. It's not logical. We need to uh, uh, think straight about these things, but it's insane, really. It's it's just not proper thinking. So we're going to find what we seek. Listen to Proverb chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So there's the beginning of knowledge. Okay, I'm just going to learn some things and see where it takes me. We usually don't do that. There's usually a motive. Why am I learning and what do I hope to gain from it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of true knowledge. Now James describes in the New Testament that there is the knowledge from above or wisdom from above, and then there's the wisdom from beneath. Uh, Basically, you can draw your conclusions and you can draw your thoughts from from heaven, what God has given us as the true worldview, how to see this life, how to understand it, how to understand its blessings, and how to understand its hardships. God reveals to us, Peter said, all things that we need to understand life and godliness, according to the knowledge of Him uh, who gave Himself uh, by glory and virtue to us, uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. And so there's that option, and then there's that wisdom that's from beneath. That men have, as Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, that they've gained from knowledge under the sun. I said to myself, or I said in my heart, and I saw this thing under the sun. And that's the idea in Ecclesiastes in that book where he says, without a divine perspective on things, here's how I see it. Now, sometimes you can come to similar conclusions than, than, that God does. Most of the time, you're going to draw completely different conclusions because you're going to start in the wrong place. Like, where did I come from? And that will usually send you off in the wrong direction if you listen to men. Uh, in our day and age in particular. He said in the Proverbs chapter 2, if you seek her, that is this knowledge of the Lord, if you seek her as silver, boy, if we would seek the knowledge of God like we seek money. (laughs) If we would put our hearts into finding out the will of God, Ephesians 5.17, like we seek to earn money. (laughs) If you seek for her as silver, And search for her as for hidden treasures, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. See, so I think it begins with you determining what do I seek in my life. We draw conclusions about whether there's a God or not from nature around us, from human nature, from various dynamics of the Scripture and its revelation. Then we decide, well what shall I seek? If we set out on a course to seek God like we're seeking riches, seeking hidden treasure, we're going to find life. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, 105, that God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But for those who seek to rule their own lives, Job said it this way. He said, just like somebody flipping on that light switch in the morning, He said, a lamp is despised to those who are at ease. You know, who wants to be laid back in the lazy chair in a nice dim lit room nodding off and have somebody flip the lights on? Who wants to be uh, laying in bed coming off of a good night's sleep and have someone flip the lights on? He said, for those who do not seek life, he said, uh, "Who do not seek God and, and eternal life?" He said, "That's what the light of God's word is like. It's like a, a bright light coming on there. They're in such darkness. They're in such ease that it's offensive to them. Now the ultimate aim of our thinking should be that every thought become aligned with Christ and judge the world. If you could advance that, Gordon, uh, judge the world, um, or who will judge the world? And Paul said this. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what kind of strongholds, Paul, are you talking about? What weaponry are you talking about? He said, the weapons of our warfare warfare are for casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, to cast it down, to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, that's interesting because over in his letter to Timothy, Paul said that servants of the Lord ought to be gentle, ought not to quarrel, be patient, able to teach. He says, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, that they might escape the snare of the devil, uh, who has taken them captive to do his will. That's in 2 Timothy two twenty through 25, they've been taken captive to do His will. And what Paul is saying here is, we need to capture back these people who have been led into wrong thinking about life, about God, and about their destinies. We need to capture them back. And so, Jeremiah comes on the scene at a time of national, I guess I'm going to have to keep pointing... Uh, I don't even have the clicker to hit figures. Sorry, guys. Gordon, don't fall asleep back here. I need you. All right? Uh, Jeremiah comes on the scene at a time when the thinking is just really off. And Judah's days are numbered. Uh, we talked about this a little bit in class this morning. And God says, I want you to go and correct some of their thinking. I want you to confront and recapture their thoughts for me, in essence, is what he's saying. And so he goes in his ministry and points out what the, what the son of David, Solomon, had already said in the proverb, that there's a way that, to, to man that seems right, but its end leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right. You, you probably think that you're doing the right thing, but he confronts them on a, on a number of, of questions, and they're posed questions. The Apostle Paul does this in the Corinthian letter. He says, now concerning this, now concerning that. And they had asked him a bunch of questions. But here he's saying, I hear you in the recesses of your heart asking these questions. But you're not asking me for answers. You've got the questions. The questions in and of themselves are okay to ask. We all ask questions about, God, where are you? Uh, When are you going to answer my prayer? What are you doing right now while all this is happening? We have hard questions for God. He welcomes those. He says, here I am. I'll answer those things. But what they weren't doing is desiring the outcome in favor with God. They were desiring to resolve their own problems because they wanted by their own pleasures to live in their own way. And so here's the first thing that they did. Uh, go ahead and advance that one for me. Uh, the priests, go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Everybody turn to Jeremiah chapter 2. we We're going to look at four things that they were thinking here and what was the matter with them. Now here's what they didn't ask. The priests did not say, "Where is the Lord? Now this isn't in a derogatory way or a, a, a doubtful way where they're saying, well where's the Lord and all this? What he's saying is they didn't ask, "Where's the Lord? or let's inquire of the Lord or what's the Lord's will? That would have been the question they should have asked. Why is this stuff happening to us? Where is the Lord on this? Let us pursue, to find out what we can learn about our situation that's dire and why he seems so far from us so that we may come back to him. He said, the priest didn't say, where's the Lord? And those who handle the law, priests, the, the scribes, teachers of the law, they, he says, did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that didn't profit. So they didn't desire God and they didn't seek Him and they didn't think right thoughts. Don't you love that simple proverb that Don read, the very first one? The thoughts of the righteous are right. That's just profound. I mean, you think, oh, well, of course, and you go on. Yeah, Think about that. The thoughts of the right. Those who are righteous have come to righteousness in God's eyes because they've sought His counsel. Therefore, the thought process of the righteous are right thoughts. So again, it establishes this, and they're saying, we just don't even want to go to to God about this. God said, my people, in verse 13, "have have committed two great evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Do you see that? Back in Isaiah, Isaiah said in chapter 55, verse 1, Lo, come to the waters and drink, you who thirst. Here Jeremiah says, They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Doesn't that sound like the Lord as well, saying that in John chapter 4? And here's the second thing they've done. Now it's one thing to have stopped seeking the Lord, but you're going to fill that void in your life. Do you realize that? We're we're going to have some kind of worldview by which we operate and so if if we do not have god in our knowledge like paul said that the gentiles did not then we're going to fill our thought process with something and he says what they did is they built cisterns that that wouldn't hold water now a cistern's different than a well a well is is a, is a deep hole drilled it does not necessarily have any kind of a container in the bottom. It can be down in the, uh, in the uh, shale or the, the, you know, the rock formations down under the ground and you're just basically tapping straight into that water source. It draws and it fills up the well so far and you just draw out of it. It kind of naturally purifies the water while it's coming in through all the, the, the rocks and so forth into that. It gets filtered so you can drink it. A cistern is building like a, uh, a pool or building uh, a trough of some sort. And he said, so they're actually going to the trouble to try to find a quench for their thirst. They're building up something that will will promise them great things and they'll be able to drink from it and be thirsty. He said, but it's cracked. So they go to all this trouble and it doesn't even hold water because the promises are empty. And they'll drink from it. Maybe there'll be some water in there. They'll drink from it, but they'll still be thirsty. And that's what Jesus picked up on in John chapter 4 is you drink this water, you drink of me, and you'll never thirst again. This will be the water that's satisfied. So he's calling them out here for basically establishing another worldview, uh, establishing another way of, of thinking about life and living their lives out. Even today, God's people sometimes ignore this fountain of living water found in covenant relationship with Christ and work really hard to dig and carefully construct a cistern, which has cracks in it. You can call it idolatry. It's the same thing. Building yourself another place from which you're going to drink, from which you're going to be filled, from which you're going for your satisfaction in life. It's idolatry. It could be, your cistern could look like any number of things. We're building sometimes cisterns. I want you to think about the idea, you're not just drawn from a well here, you're building something. Now, where is your time and your energy going? Where, where do you pour forth your, your desire and your passion in your life? Are you, are you building your life upon the rock and building up a house that is visible to God and evident that He is building it? Or is your energy and passion and, and uh, zeal and, and everything that comes with it, your time and finances and all that, going into building a cistern that you're thinking is giving me some pleasure and some satisfaction, but it's cracked and it, it's going to run dry on you, or you're drinking but you're just still thirsty. And how long are you going to drink before you say, this really doesn't fill me, this really doesn't fill my life? I had two conversations last week with people in their 20s, which is pretty early, thankfully, that people said, You know, I've been pursuing something and I've realized it's empty. They use that, both of them use that word. The second person that came to me, I said, You're the second person this week that said the same thing about a different pursuit, different desires that they've had in their lives. And it doesn't take long sometimes, but sometimes we can build our whole life stubbornly and never come to a point where we're drinking of the well, the fountain free that Jesus Christ offers with his words of sustenance. Where is the Lord in all this effort? That's the question you need to ask that the priest didn't ask. Let me have the second one up there, please. By the time I get to the end of this, I'm going to have to say pretty pleased with a cherry on top, I suppose. All right. They said in chapter 2, verse 20, For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds says God, and you said, I will not transgress. Look at verse 23. God says, how can you say, I am not polluted? Look at verse 35. Yet you say, because I'm innocent, and at the end of that verse, because you say, I've not sinned. You think, well, nobody does that really, do they? I mean, nobody says, I don't sin, do they? I can, I can name a few people I've talked to. I remember very distinctly early on while I was studying at the school preaching, um, having, uh, doing some summer work with uh, someone and working in a, an enclosed area with someone for hours on end, so you get on all kinds of subjects, and um, they, were, they were drilling me about, about faith. And they said, well, what's the big deal about God sacrificing his son? You know, he went back to heaven anyhow, so they didn't understand sacrifice, but then they said, and, "And besides, I've not, I've not done anything worthy of hell. I've never killed anybody. I've never cheated on my wife, you know, uh, and etc. You know these quote-unquote big sins. And what? You know, basically, what they I'm like, wow, this person really doesn't think that they have sin. Well, there's people that think that out there. Well, look what they did." in verses 26 through 28. And you tell me if there's people who who are saying, in essence, today, I have no sin. As a thief is ashamed when he's found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets are ashamed because I'm confronting them. Now look at 27. Saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave birth to me. Now before you might chuckle at that, do we not say in our day and age, our mother nature, as opposed to father God? Do, do people not say mother nature as a direct replacement of the divine creator of the universe? Sure we do. Sometimes flippantly, even we Christians sometimes, I've learned to stay away from that phrase. It's, it's exactly the opposite of saying father God. (laughs) But more so than that, this stone gave birth to me. What does the theory of evolution, organic evolution say? Somewhere back in time, this primordial soup, this primordial mixture of basic elements, of inanimate, non-living elements gave birth to me. And there's a lot of people who look and say, we came from something other than God. And so this isn't so far-fetched after all, is it? (laughs) This isn't so ancient, really, now is it? And what it is, is so that people can say, I don't have sin. When you say, I have sin, that necessarily implies that you're being held accountable to an objective moral standard that says you're wrong. Now, if we can get rid of that moral standard, the Bible, and we can get rid of the idea of a father, God, to whom I'm going to give an answer, then I'll gladly call it Mother Nature and say, I don't sin, I just see things differently than you do. And I won't judge you if you don't judge me. And we're all happy, we'll just all disagree, agree to disagree on things. It's as prevalent today as it was when Jeremiah walked into Judah and said, You say you have no sin, calling a stone your your father. Wow. That hurts. That's sobering. We've got work to do, church. We've got work to do to show the light of Christ in this world and the light of our Creator. They said, if you give me the next one, pretty please, in chapter 2, verse 1. 25, look at this now, there's a progression here. They didn't ask, where is the Lord? Then they began to say, well, we don't sin. Now they're saying what? Do you see it? God said, I heard you say, there is no hope. And he's going to spend the next 60 some chapters addressing that issue right there. You say there's no hope, do you? You don't know me. You don't know me. That's a wrong thought because where there is God, there's always hope. Boy, he gets right on his answer too. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. They say if a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's, may he return to her again? Would not that land be greatly polluted if this was going on? And he's recanting actually Deuteronomy 24, the law. Would, that, would the land not be polluted if this divorcing and remarrying was all going on? You've played the harlot with many lovers. Now listen to this. Yet, I say, return to me. That's the book of Hosea, isn't it? Hosea, take yourself a wife of harlotry. He did. They had children together. She left him and became a sex slave. And then he said, Hosea, I want you to go take her back. Because this will mirror to the people how I view, with deep love and commitment, my people, Israel. Wouldn't it be awful if the, God says, yeah, I'll take you back. I will take you back. How powerful. There is hope. But it's a misunderstanding of grace. In fact, it comes to the point where Ezekiel, while they're in captivity, will call out these same questions and say, you say it's not fair. Yet the Lord says to you, is your way not fair? Your way is not fair, actually. My way says, when you sin, you come to me and confess. Uh, Look at chapter 3 of Jeremiah, uh, verse 13. Acknowledge your iniquity, that you've transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your charms and alien deities under every green tree, and you've not obeyed my voice. Acknowledge this. Return, he says. Verse 15, and I'll give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And through the whole rest of the book, he's going to call them back to him. Don't ever say, if you're in this audience today and you're thinking, I don't think there's any hope for me. Study these passages today. Study these chapters and re-ask that question. Is there no hope? God puts up a pretty adamant rebuttal to that thought. And says, as long as I'm here, and you hear me, there's hope. I'll take you back. I'll take you back. Finally, they said in, pre pleased with the cherry on top. Yes. Finally, they said in verse 31 of chapter 2. He says, why do my people say, we are lords, we will come to you no more? Because there's only two alternatives. There's God and mammon, all right? There's self-seeking and God-seeking. We might say in apologetic terms, there's creation and there's evolution. There's the supernatural or the natural. There's a pursuit of the living God or you become your own God. Any way you want to say it, there's just two, two options here. So naturally, if someone rejects God, they become their own Lord. They're going to decide how they're going to live their life. Now you might say, well, not really, this is my Lord, this stone or this piece of wood, or this thing that I do in my life where all my passion's going. This is my God, but ultimately, you are becoming your own Lord because you get to relieve your own sins by your own justification. You get to say, this is acceptable to me. That's what idolatry does. That's the great deceit. That's the great lie of idolatry. And so we can have help thinking. And if you want to flip the next slide, just pull them all up. We can have help thinking, right? Through God's word, 1 Timothy 2.15, to study, to show yourself, to prove to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. 1 Corinthians 4.6, Paul said, concerning Apollos and I, and what we're, we're explaining to you, we're teaching you not to, to learn not to go beyond what is written. What God is revealing and we're inscribing in this word, when we depart and the apostles die, and, and the Spirit through revelation completes this deliverance of this word of God, you'll have it in writing. Now that's where we are today, and he said you need to learn not to go beyond what is written, creating your own God, giving Him your own attributes. Stick with His presentation of Himself because He is the one you're going to stand before in the end. Don't change Him. Just be real. Just face this and deal with your sins. The church, Galatians 6.1, Donovan read this this morning in the reading, If any any of your brethren are overtaken in a trespass, let he who is spiritual go and restore such a one, right? We learn that the church is good for, as well as the Word of God, personally confronting each other and asking the hard questions, demanding the hard things, like a family demands because they love each other. We're, we're, We're holding each other accountable. That's part of the family atmosphere here, all right? So God's word, the church that he has designed for us to, to live in this way and to check each other on these things. And finally, I put that as a joke, get married because your spouse will hold you because it's, it's actually not a joke, but it's kind of funny because Monica won't let me think wrong. I mean, she just won't let me think wrong. I try sometimes and she always seems to call me out when I'm thinking wrong. And I can try to fight it all I want, but it always comes back to the fact that she's right. I'm thinking wrong. All right? So get married. But I'll leave you with this. Your desire to know God has to be greater than your desire for the world. And your desire to do right has to be greater than your desire to sin. And... Your desire to change has to be greater than your desire to stay the same if you're going to have a destiny with God eternally. Therefore, we have to change the way we think. We have to be conformed to God, transformed into the likeness of Christ. We have to renew our minds, the apostle writes in all these places. There's change in order. There's change in order. In other words, we have to do the hard work. We have to do the hard work. It's easy not to change and to sit around and think about how to justify it. It's the hard work of saying, acknowledge your sin, confess, and bring it to me. That's humbling. That's harder when we have to swallow our pride. But thinking right thoughts about the great questions in life is the only way that you're going to be led into eternity with God so don't deny your sin, but set God as your hope. Don't say there is no hope because He's calling you even, even now to come and confess and to bring your sin to Him and confess Christ as your Lord and let Him cleanse you. Let's stand and sing this song.